You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to turn to Genesis 35. We'll be reading the entire chapter as we continue our study of Genesis. Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all of the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all of the people who were with him, And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob. But Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. When they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Ben-Yamin, or Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him 
and paid in Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, that is Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We thank you for preserving this word for us, preserving these stories. We thank you, O Father, that in the midst of this, of this narrative, this historical narrative, that, Father, there are many lessons for us to, to learn. And, Father, we do desire to receive that which the Holy Spirit intends to teach us through this passage. And Father, we pray that, Lord, you would be pleased to be our instructor and our guide this morning, O Lord, so that we would understand this properly, so that, Father, our hearts could be changed by this word, so that our hearts could be encouraged by this word, so that our hearts could be corrected and even rebuked, if necessary, by this word. But so, Father, that you could be glorified, O Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would be made more and more like Christ. So to these ends, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I'm fond of saying that there are three things that are important in studying our Bibles. They are context and what are the other two? Context, context, and context, yes. And um, really, at one point, I was kind of toying with taking Genesis 34 and 35 together, actually, because uh, Genesis 35 and 34, really, uh, they're, they're, they're so close. We, need to, we always need to look at these two, uh, these two chapters together. Now, for the benefit of those who didn't hear uh, the message on Genesis 34 or haven't read Genesis 34 in quite some time, it would be important that we take a look at Genesis 34. And uh, those who were with us last week probably remember it quite well. Uh, Genesis 34 is a dark chapter, isn't it? It's a dark chapter in Jacob's life. And it begins with Dinah. You know, in verse 1, Dinah, you know, she's probably only 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. And here she is near the city of Shechem. She's in a Canaanite land, a land where sexual immorality prevails. And here she wanders off unchaperoned. And what happens is the prince of the land sets eyes on her and he has his way with her. And last week we asked the question, okay, where was Jacob? And that's a question that we asked through the whole chapter. Now, you'll recall those of us who have been around for this whole study, as we come to Abraham and we're on the ups and we're on the downs with him, we come to Isaac and we're on the ups and on the downs with him, we come to Jacob and we're on the ups and on the downs with him. I've, been, I've said over and over again, that these narratives are not given so that we can slam the patriarchs. That's not the reason we have them. But that having been said, Jacob is indeed asleep at the wheel, isn't he? He offers no 
uh, spiritual direction in this chapter at all. In fact, he hardly speaks in this chapter until we get to verse 30, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But what's he do in response to this? Uh, Shechem, he, you know, he has taken that which does not belong to him. And uh, the odd thing is, verse 3 tells us that Shechem falls in love with Dinah. And that he desires to have her for his wife. And Shechem and his father Hamor come to Jacob. And they come to Jacob's uh, sons. And they ask for Dinah's hand in, in marriage. Give this girl to Shechem that they may be married. And uh, Jacob's sons are furious. And we can understand their fury, can't we? They're furious. And they speak up and say, well, we, we can't do this thing because you are uncircumcised. And what we see them doing with the covenant sign of circumcision is really, they, they, they profane, they're profaning it. And as if somebody could, as if the people could be engrafted into the people of God simply by going through this external rite of circumcision. And I don't think engrafting them into the people of God is even what's on their minds. But the Shechemites, okay, they agree, okay, they've got dollar signs in their eyes. They, they agree, uh, we'll go ahead and undergo this painful surgery. And uh, what's really at stake here with this whole story is the assimilation of the people of God into the people of Canaan. You know, that's, that's the danger. That's what the evil one's up to. And uh, the, the Shechemites, they undergo this circumcision, and we're told on the third day, while they're all sore, Simeon and Levi attack them. And they murder every male in the entire city. And then they plunder the city. And they take the women and children off. And that's when Jacob finally speaks. If you look at verse 30, he finally speaks and he says, You've brought, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And I pointed out the pronouns that are used there, namely the my, me, I, me, my, I, I, me, 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 me. Uh, it's all pointing towards Jacob. Jacob has a point that we're going to see here in verse 5. He does have a point. As the neighboring villages are looking at what happened, and they see that, okay, this, this agreement of peace was rendered between Jacob's family and the men of Shechem, only for them to turn on them like that, uh, they are indeed a stench in their eyes. And uh, of course, um, there's going to be some hostility to come out of that. So Jacob has a point. But here we see Jacob. He, he's asleep at the wheel. He's not offering any spiritual direction here whatsoever. And then we come to chapter 35 and verse 1. And what happens? God comes and speaks to Jacob. It's just absolutely amazing. God comes and speaks to Jacob. And look what he says. He says, arise and go up to Bethel. Now, what is so significant about that? Some of you are smiling because you know. And through the course of this, you remember I've been saying, listen, we always need to keep Genesis 28 in mind as we study these chapters. And what happens in Genesis 28? Turn back there. Some of us, some of us might not have read this in a long time. Some of us may have never read this. Genesis 28, let's just review. In Genesis 28, it's 20 years earlier. 
And Jacob has just deceived his father. I mean, he's done this despicable thing in deceiving his father, posing as Esau, and he steals a birthright. And his, his brother is furious. His brother wants to kill him. And uh, Jacob is fleeing from Esau, but Jacob, Jacob also, Isaac, his father, has also said to Jacob, listen, I want you to go up to Paden Aram. I want you to go up to your uncle Laban's, and I want you to find a wife from one of his daughters. So it's these two reasons. Jacob is leaving his house. He's leaving his father's house. He's going to find a wife uh, from his uncle Laban's household, but he's also fleeing from Esau who wants to kill him. And we're told in verse 11 that he came to a certain place and stayed there that night and that he took one of the stones of the place and he put it under his head. Now, keep in mind here, Jacob at this point doesn't even own a pillow. He doesn't even own a pillow. And in verse 12, he has a dream, and oh, what a dream it is. There he sees a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And the angels of God are ascending and descending on it. In verse 13, there the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And then the Lord proceeds to, to communicate to Jacob those covenant promises that he had given to Abraham so many times. He says, the land in which you lie, I'm going to give to you and to your offspring. Then he says in verse 14, your offspring is going to be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread to the north, south, the east, the west. And then he gives what we call the messianic promise. The promise that in you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Now, what does that mean? You've heard me say it numerous times. That means that in the genealogical line of Jacob, one of his sons of the seed of Jacob would be born Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. If there's only one person in the family who knows Jesus, that family is blessed. It's blessed to have one, isn't it? And as we think this morning, think about it. We're actually recipients of that promise, aren't we? Here we are. We're part of that promise. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're part of that promise. You've been blessed through this promise. This is so amazing. But notice what God says next. He says, behold, I am with you. And you can't help but to read that and think, Emmanuel, can you? Behold, I'm with you. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is born. He prophesies that the, burden shall be, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And here he is saying, what is he saying? I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So this is what's happened 20 years earlier at Bethel. And, and Jacob, how does he respond? Verse 18, early in the morning, Jacob took a stone. He put it, the stone that he'd had under his head, his pillow. He set it up for a pillar. He pulled oil on it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God, by the way. And then he made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I'll come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be 
God's house. And of all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to to you. And of course, Jacob, I don't think Jacob there is making a deal with the Lord. I think Jacob is just simply responding, wow, Lord, you're going to do all this for me. This is the least I can do in response. I think that's how that's, I think that's what's being said there. Now, with this in mind, let's go back to Genesis 35 and verse 1. There, Jacob, you know, Jacob has Genesis 34 from him. He's in the midst of a dark chapter in his life. And then all of a sudden, the rays of the Son of God comes into his, into his life, and God says to him, says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Now, what is that communicating to Jacob? It's communicating to Jacob his first experience, his first encounter with the living God, isn't it? And the point that I'm, that I'm trying to make here, that I think we need to see here with verse 1, is that in calling Jacob to go back to Bethel, what the Lord is doing is he's calling Jacob back into communion with himself, isn't he? Because in bringing him back to Bethel, in bringing him back to the house of God, in bringing him back to the ladder, if you will, Bringing him back to the promises. I will bring you out of this land. I'll be with you everywhere you go. I will be with you until all that I have promised has taken place. What is Jacob going to be experiencing as he hears this? Lord, you did make all those promises. Back when I was alone and didn't even have a pillow for my head. And I had this long journey ahead of me. I didn't even know my uncle Laban had any daughters. I didn't know if I would be successful. I didn't know if I would even make it there alive. And then I didn't know if I'd even make it back. And then I had Esau to deal with. Notice that God brings that up. Second sentence, verse 1. Make an altar there in Bethel to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. What is God doing? He's sharpening the point. Hello, Jacob. You remember Esau? You were in a jam. And in a previous message, we looked at Jacob's reuniting with and reconciliation with Esau, didn't we? Saw the Lord was all over that. And what is this doing to Jacob? This is recalling past deliverances. Lord, you promised that you would be with me. And I didn't even have a pillow for my head. Now I have 12 children. I have probably a thousand livestock. I have servants. I have this big household. And I am currently back safely in the land of Canaan. Now, what's going to be communicated to Jacob is the joy of salvation. It's the joy of salvation. And the joy of salvation, the joy of deliverance from God, that also comes with it as a byproduct, strength to follow and obey the Lord, doesn't it? That's why the psalmist so much of the time calls us to look back to past deliverances in order to gain strength for present and future trials. Because when we look back at past deliverances, there we see God was faithful. And that strengthens our faith to realize that He's going to be faithful in this too, and He's going to be faithful in the future. He really is going to bring God's promises. 
And if you haven't been walking with Jesus for very long, you might not have much experience in this, but you will. <laughs> Unfortunately, you will. Uh, suffering is not fun, but as you do it, and you see God's hand in it, and you see God delivering it, there is a sense where there's joy in it. And we can say with James, I consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. We don't want to invite these things on ourselves. We don't want to ask for these things. There'll be plenty come away without asking, come your way without asking for them. But it's a new way of looking at them when you're in the midst of them. So Jacob is full of joy, uh, undoubtedly full of joy. How can I say this? How do I know this? Well, look what happens in verse 2. Now, in chapter 34, Jacob is asleep at the wheel, right? Now, what's he doing in verse 2? Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. The one who refused to lead in Genesis 34 is now standing up to lead in Genesis 35. And look at the way he is leading. This is gospel stuff right here. The gospel is in Genesis 35 all over the place. Look at this. What's he say? Put away the foreign gods. Now, how do these foreign gods get in Jacob's household? Well, we know that Rachel stole his father, her father's gods when they were fleeing from Laban, right? And you remember Laban came into Jacob's camp and accused Jacob of stealing them. And Jacob didn't know what he was talking about. He said, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. He didn't know what his wife Rachel had stolen them. And of course, Rachel, she hides them under a saddle. It's kind of funny. It's a little bit humorous because there she is sitting on Laban's gods. They're so powerless they can't even get up. Hey, you're sitting on me. God has got a sense of humor. He really does. Um, so I, we have no record. What did Rachel do with them? Maybe she's still holding on to them, which is not a good thing. But also, Simeon and Levi had just got done slaughtering the Shechemites and plundering the place. So it's not inconceivable they drug a bunch of these, these little trinkets and these gods and these earrings, these amulets, and all these various things that people would use to worship foreign deities in that day, that they may have drugged them into the camp. And what does Jacob say? He says, put them away. Do away with them. Put them away. Be done with them. Make a, dis make a decisive, uh, 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 sever yourself from these things. Remove these things. Put these things away. Secondly, he says, purify yourselves. And of course, this, this is speaking of an inward, uh, an inward grace, isn't it? If something is pure, you know, it's, it's, it's pure all the way through. And he's saying, purify yourselves. And then he says, change your garments. And I think that changing your garments, now, that's amazing. This is just absolutely amazing what, what Jacob, I mean, he goes from being no leader at all to being, this, this is incredible, incredible spiritual leadership that Jacob is giving here. What is significant about change of garments? We could say it graphically, Simeon and Levi, those bloodstained garments that you use to slaughter the Shechemites, take them off and discard them. Put on clean clothes. Or we could go to Zechariah chapter 3 for the illustration of this that we have there. And Zechariah, you don't need to turn there, but the story, some of you know the story. There's Zechariah, the high priest is. He's in a vision, and in the vision, there he is in filthy clothes. And Satan begins to accuse him because the filthy clothes are symbolic of his sin. 
He said, look, look at these filthy clothes. I'm hoping that God will condemn him. But what does God do? Well, off with those clothes. Off with those clothes. And on with pure vestments. And what is that symbolic of? That's symbolic of what the Apostle Paul says, off with the old and on with the new. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul says. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. It's an amazing stuff, isn't it? Jacob says to his household, he leads. And then in verse 3, he says, let us arise and go up to Bethel. We're going to the house of God. These folks are headed to a worship service. Jacob gets up, gets his family together, and he takes them to church. That's what he's doing. It's amazing. Especially for a guy who hasn't been taking his family to church forever. Now all of a sudden, listen, we're getting up. We're going to church. We're going to make an altar there to God. God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. See, that's fresh on his mind. It's fresh on his mind that God has delivered him. It's fresh on his mind. Now, what does his family do? They gave to Jacob all of the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree or the oak tree that was near Shechem. Some, some commentaries say Jacob was really a, a just, it was great, but it was a little insufficient. And we might even think, that, okay, why didn't he just destroy all of these things? Why bury them under a tree? I, I don't know. I don't want to say a whole lot about that. But if you read commentary on this passage, you'll, you'll encounter that in no time, whether he's destroyed them or anything. But the point is, he's done away with them. The point is, he's leaving them back in Shechem. And we could put it another way. The point is, he's leaving them back in that dark chapter, isn't he? He's leaving them back there. Now, I've already begun to do this, but let's, let's, move, this, let's, let's move this closer to home. I mean, let, let's bring this to home. We, we could look at this a couple of ways. Uh, most of us, I think, if all of, all of us, will confess that we've had dark chapters in our lives, haven't we? I mean, especially those of us who were converted in adulthood like myself. Uh, I, I have a long, dark chapter in my life where I was not walking with Jesus. And the roads that I was on were not good roads. Uh, I have a long Genesis 34 period in my life. And um, what had happened? Well, what happened is God called me. He didn't call me to Bethel. It's not where God calls us now. He called me to Calvary. What's at Calvary? It's the cross. He called me to Jesus. And what did I discover when I went to Calvary? I discovered a cross. And there was Jesus. And what was he doing there? He was agonizing as he took the sin debt and the penalty of my Genesis 34 period. But beyond that, the penalty of all my sins, past, present, and future. I come to think of it, he wasn't just doing that for me. If you're in Christ this morning, you realize he was doing that for you too, wasn't he? Now, when you look upon that cross with the eye of faith, what does it do? I think initially for me, it took me a little while. I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. 
really? It took me a while to really believe this. Really? Oh, yeah. You love me that much? Yeah. I hear that serious about saving my soul. Yeah. I'm as serious as it gets. That fills your heart with joy. It just fills your heart with joy. One of the products of that joy is strength to follow and obey, isn't it? I can remember saying, Lord, I'm yours. I am all yours from now. I am all yours. I remember saying that. I remember saying that with tears just coming out of my eyes. I'm all yours. I am all yours. That's my Bethel experience. Now, I don't want to make a lot of that because for some of us, some of us, we can't really point to a Bethel experience. I pray for the kids all the time. I pray for the kids that they'll never really know a day where they didn't know Jesus and their experience is going to be different where they're just going to walk and I'm praying that they just walk and they embrace Jesus and they might not be able to point to a day where they had a Bethel experience. And I say that because I, if that sounds like you, I don't want you to think you're some kind because you don't have some kind of experience like this. It would be better for me to have been like you, to have just walked with Jesus. But there's another application to this text. After we walk with Jesus, we can still have Genesis 34 periods in our lives, can't we? They may be a time of serious backsliding. They may just be a time where we just find our hearts growing dull. We're just dull. Praying just seems like a chore. We're not reading our Bibles much. We start missing church. We're not interested. Well, if you're in Christ Jesus, here's the good news. If you're in Christ Jesus, God's not going to leave you like that. He won't. He didn't leave Jacob like that, did he? Did Jacob go up on a high mountain and say, Lord, I need you. I'm in a Genesis 34 period here. This is one of those Genesis 34 chapters. No, God broke the silence. God is not even mentioned in Genesis 34. He's mentioned more than 10 times in Genesis 35. God stepped in. And God said, Jacob, go back to Bethel. If somebody's experiencing a Genesis 34 point right now, they might think, well, I hope God will speak to me. Don't think that my message is this, that you need to find a high mountain this afternoon and go up and wait for God to say, hey, go to Bethel, or hey, go to, go to Calvary. You don't need to wait at all because God is telling you right now to go to Calvary. How do I know that? Because I've just told you that. God uses his messengers to call us. He uses preachers. He uses faithful servants at the water cooler at work. He uses us to call one another. He's calling. He's calling. And it's only at Calvary where we'll find ourselves pure. You cannot be purified anywhere else save Calvary. You can only be purified as the blood of Christ purifies you, as the death of Christ takes your sins away. 
That's the only way you can be pure. There is no other way. Jesus is the ladder. Jesus tells us that He is the ladder in the Gospel of John. He is the ladder. He is the bridge to heaven. He takes us to heaven by taking our sins away from us, taking that record to the cross, suffering the penalty for that record. But, you know, in my little cross and stick figure drawings I like to make, there's that exchange that takes place. Our sins go to Jesus and Christ's perfect righteousness. Or those new clothes are given to us. Those new clothes. Without those clothes, you can't get into heaven. Jesus tells a parable about the banquet, and there's a man found in there who doesn't have the right clothes on. You have to be clothed in Christ to get into heaven. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Save the name of Christ Jesus. Right? What about our idols? You know, I have a list of things here. I call motivation. I thought, you know, these were coming to me as I was studying this chapter. I kept thinking, you know, there's a point here. There's a point here in this bridge between Genesis 34 and 35 that I really want you to see. And I don't only want you to see it. I want you to own it. I want you to leave here owning this. Own this. Own this as yours. At the end of the Genesis 34 passage and the beginning of Genesis 35, something takes place. God acts. And when God acts, he calls Jacob. Now, what might we expect God to say to Jacob? We might expect him to say, Jacob, you've just gone too far. I've had enough. That isn't what he says, is it? He says, Jacob, go to Bethel. The point I want to make here is that the sal- our salvation is always in God's eyes. The salvation of God's children is always in God's eyes. Now, that's, that's a dangerous thing if we want to be presumptive and say, oh, well, God's always got, he's always got our salvation in our eyes. Let's go and live the any way we want. If that's what you're thinking, you're in in a dangerous error. But it fills us with joy if we realize that there God is being a father, picking up a child who's on his or her face, as Jacob is here in Genesis 34. So God never takes his eyes off of the salvation of his people. And that's a motivation to let go of our idols. Another motivation, and I would say this, don't be afraid to let go of your idols. I mean, why do we hold on to our idols? When I speak about idols, what am I talking about? I mean, most of us, I think, probably know what I'm talking about. But an idol could be anything, anything that's, that we love more than Jesus. It could be the praise of other people. We just love praise of other people or caring what other people think of us. Or it could be our spouse. If we love our spouse more than we love Jesus. If Tammy loves me more than she loves Jesus, then I've become an idol to her. Why well, pray she never does that? And vice versa. Or if we love our kids more than we love Jesus. Anything. 
Why do we do that? Because they hold out such, they hold out benefits. We create these idols because we want these certain benefits and they're different. All of us are different. We'll make different idols. They're Some of them are similar, but many of them are different. And we customize this perfect little idol for ourselves so that we can get this benefit that we think we want and think we need. And boy, does that benefit get a grip on you. It gets such a grip on you. It It gets a hold of you with this grip. And you think to yourself, I can't live without this. I really can't live without this. I have to have this. I can't survive without this. Don't be afraid to let that go. Now, why do I say that? Genesis, or Psalm 37, verse 4 says this. Write that verse down somewhere. Psalm 37, verse 4. The psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You're holding on to that idol because that idol is promising you the desires of your heart. It might be fame and fortune. So many people are chasing fame and fortune. Fame and fortune. They want fame and fortune. Most of them aren't going to get it, but some of them do get it. The ones that don't get it are the blessed ones. The ones who do get it, well, then what happens? Well, they just want more of it. Until comes a point in time, they can't even go to the, down, to the, down to the store without a mob around them. And then they wish nobody knew them. That's what idols will do for you. And this could be multiplied a million times. But God, God says, no, delight yourself in me. And I'll give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because I'm going to change your heart. And I'm going to make you long for things that you can have and that you should have and that you must have. Like righteousness. Longing for righteousness is not something that we're going to long for left alone. We don't want righteousness. But as you delight yourself in the Lord, what does he do? He works in your heart to where you begin to love righteousness. And you want righteousness. Well, that's okay with God. You love righteousness, and he'll give you all the righteousness. He'll give you the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You see how that works? Don't be afraid to let go of those idols. Don't be afraid to let that stuff go. Don't be afraid to let it go. But secondly, notice here, notice here that the, the, the idols in Jacob's house They could have never protected him from the Canaanites that around him. Look at verse 5. As they journeyed from Shechem, that is, down to their destination, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. What's going on there? God is putting a terror in these people so that they do not proclaim war against Jacob. Well, why would they do that? Because of what Simeon and Levi did. That's what Jacob's worried about at the very, in verse 30 of chapter 34. Jacob's idols, the idols that are in his household couldn't have protected them. They would have been, har- they would, they would have, they would have been harmless to the Canaanites who would have attacked them. But God protects them. Don't be afraid to let go of your idols. They can't protect you. The idols in Jacob's house could never get him through what's coming. You, you know, the rest of this chapter is heartbreak, isn't it? I mean, I think we have it sometimes in our minds that, listen, if we, as soon as we surrender our lives to Jesus, as soon as we come to Jesus, we surrender our lives to Jesus, and get real serious with Jesus, then it's going to be easy street after that. But what happens here? Well, in verse 8, there's a funeral. Deborah dies. 
Okay. And then in, what is it, verse 22? No. Verse 16. Rachel goes into labor. And what happens? Verse 19, she dies. The love of his life. Then look at verse 29. His father dies. Three funerals. I've, been, I've spent a lot of time at the funeral parlor. I tell you right now, idols don't help you at all at the funeral parlor. They're no help at the funeral parlor. They abandon you at the funeral parlor. The amazing thing is, at the funeral parlor, you don't even care about them. All these things you think you want so badly, they don't even care about them. But God, I've done funerals for believers. I've done funerals for unbelievers. There's tears at both, but they're a different kind of tears. They are a different kind of tears. It's tears with hope versus tears without hope. Then in verse 22, this heinous and awful thing happens. Reuben, Reuben takes his father's wife. How do you get through that? Your idols won't get you through family dysfunction. As we think about family dysfunction and how hard family dysfunction can be, well, there's family dysfunction. A lot could be said about that, but I think probably wrap things up here. But my point is, don't be afraid to let go of your idols because your idols aren't going to help you with this family dysfunction or work dysfunction or any kind of dysfunction, our own personal dysfunction. They're, they're not going to help. They're just going to make things worse. I thought the best way to conclude this message is to turn back to what we call Old 100. Have you ever heard Psalm 100 called that? Old 100. There's a tune written for Psalm 100 that when Psalm 100 is sung and oftentimes sung a cappella in the seminary that I studied in, we sang psalms only and we sang them a cappella with no musical accompaniment. And uh, Old 100 is a song, it's a tune that we sometimes sing. But look at Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His course with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. And his steadfast love, think about his steadfast love right now between the juncture of Genesis 34 and 35. Because that'll put, that'll put rubber on that for you. His steadfast love. His eyes are never off your salvation. And it's never off my salvation. His, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Heavenly Father, 
What a glorious truth that you give us, especially early in Genesis 35. All the light that we find there is much greater than the darkness that we find in Genesis 34. And your light is greater than the darkness. And we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that your eyes are always on our salvation because we take our eyes off of you continually. Father, we don't want to do that. We can say with the Apostle Paul the things that we do are things we don't want to do. With that remnant of sin still dwelling in our hearts, we take our eyes off you. But, Father, we thank you that your steadfast love endures forever. We thank you, O oh Father. But you have our personal salvation always before your eyes. And as we think about these chapters in our lives, that they come and they go, the chapters that are dark, Father, we thank you for that steadfast love. And Father, if we're in the midst of one of them now, then may we hear your call, calling us to the cross, calling us to Christ, that we may drink of salvation afresh this morning and then be strengthened from the joy Strengthen from your hand that we may follow, that we may obey, that we may do it joyously. Oh, Father, we thank you for this communion that you call us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.